time to bring you a special bulletin. This is a test of the emergency broadcast system. In five, check for sound. Four, it's showtime. Three, let's two, go. One, You're listening to the Pro Audio Suite, a program for audio and voiceover professionals. Welcome to another Pro Audio Suite, minus Robert, but we do have George. Good afternoon, evening, and it's five o'clock somewhere. It is, mm. but not, not here. here. That's right. <laughs> Up in Sydney, we've got Robbo. I'm evening, back. Morning. Yeah, I'm you back. You are back, week. yeah. I am. Uh, did you bring a note? I did bring a note. I bring a note from a very apologetic client. <laughs> it's a long story. Uh, Shall I re- I'll were, regale you later? Well, we were very concerned that you had been struck down by a bus. Oh, look, it's... And um, then it's, when we found out you hadn't, we were so disappointed that we had to... <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, look, I, um, I'd been talking to a guy about a six-part TV series uh, for a while and then everything went quiet as jobs do sometimes and so I figured I was never going to see it. And then uh, two days before we were, or a day before we were supposed to record, I get a frantic phone call from this guy going, um, you know, that series I was talking about, I had it mixed by some guy in New Zealand and uh, he sent all the mixes across and we've compiled it all and sent it off to the TV stations and it's been rejected for audio reasons and video reasons. Um, can you help? <laughs> Um, by the way, this was, and this was on a Thursday, by the way, it goes to air on Tuesday. (laughs) Holy cow. (laughs) Is this like a one hour or two hour? This was half hour or 45 minute episodes, 46 minutes or something. Yeah. So long story short, I was basically sitting here redoing someone's work who probably should never have done the work in the first place because it was, I, I only heard the mix for episode one and it was truly terrible. Um, and all wow. over the place, and certainly not compliant. We have all sorts of strange rules here in Australia besides loudness. You've got to have 12 frames of silence in and 12 frames of silence out, and none oh, of wow. that was there and all sorts of stuff. So, yeah, it's, yeah that, we, I think we're the only country in the world that has that, George. It's, it's, um, it goes back to the analogue days when the, the stations decided they wanted some audio separation between... Um, between commercials. Commercials, yeah. So they, they came up with this rule that you had to have 12 frames of silence in and 12 frames of silence out. Mm-hmm. And it, now we've moved into the digital world, they've actually never got rid of that. You still must have that. If you don't have it, it gets rejected. So, um, oh, so wow. that wasn't, that wasn't yeah. the only reason. They were all over the place and, and the, the video wasn't compliant either, so someone else had to do whatever they do to rescue that. So, um, so yeah, we got it to air, but... Um, I wasn't answering phone calls or answering emails or <laughs> anything. I was... Yeah. Head You're up Pro lockdown, Tools backside. So. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So um, we got it done. Interesting with the 12, fr- 12 frames thing. That, that is a, a real trap for people producing spots outside of Australia for Australia. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's actually 12 frames out, if my memory serves me correctly. Is that right on a commercial? 12 in, 12 out. It's not out. in and out? No, it's in is and it out. In, uh, in, yep, 12 in, oh, 12 okay. out. It is. So, um, so effectively, yeah. because we're at 25 frames a second, effect- effectively for a 30-second commercial, you get 29 seconds of audio. Yeah. And 30 seconds of picture. And 30 seconds of picture. That's right. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, Foxtel, our pay TV network, interestingly, um, uh, it only requires six, six in and six out. So if, what? Going yes. on, if Yeah, if it's going on Foxtel only, you can get away with six. So if you're doing a, say you're doing a commercial, this is typical, isn't it? If you're doing a commercial for Australian TV and New Zealand TV and it was going on Fox, Foxtel, 
that means they've got to do three cuts. They do one full 30-second for New Zealand, one 12 frames in, 12 frames out for Australian um, live TV, and then one six in, six out for Foxtel. Uh, yeah, yes. Technically, yes. It depends. Sometimes they'll just do they'll just live with the twelve in, twelve out, and distribute that to everybody. Or other other times they will do. Can you do us three mixes? Yes. Just depends. Wow. Just depends. wow. So yeah. I learned so much today. And I will never need that ever again. No, you never do. Look, just store that away in there, you know, for the next trivia night you go to for the kids or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Actually, you know, you know what's going to happen, George? Someone will actually one day bring that up and they'll say, is there any strange rules in Australia? Because I'm just making a commercial for them. And yeah. you'll go, ah, now funny I can be you the should guy ask. Knows in the room. I must tell you, exactly. yeah. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, yep. that's right. Now, talking of audio issues, um, this is one that we have. And just to um, give our listeners an idea of how the show works, basically what we do for this record while we're talking to each other and monitoring each other, um, we use Source Connect now. But what we also do is record ourselves at our end. So, George, you record yours, Robert records his, Robert records his, and I record mine. You call it a good double ender. Exactly. Then we send everything off to Robbo. He then lays up the four tracks and just gives it a bit of a, you know, slide everything into place. Then he sends it to me. And because I don't have multi-track, I have WaveLab, which is only a stereo audio system. I only get the two tracks and it's actually a split mono feed, really. So I do the edit on that. So I do all the, you know, deep breathing and moving stuff around and cutting great lumps out, whatever has to be done. But we've had a couple of issues in the last two, well, the last I think two shows that have been sent to me from Robbo, there's a really strange thing happening with the audio. Now, my audio is fine, but everybody else's audio, it sounds like it's been DS'd and compressed or something. And I sent it back to Robbo and said, what, is, is yours, have you got the same problem? And Robbo, you didn't. No, I didn't. And it sounds like, I actually think it is happening on you because I had another listen to it last night when I knew we were going to talk about this today. I actually think it is happening on you, but it's not quite as noticeable. But, George, to put you in the picture, to me what it sounds like is someone running a de-esser but too heavy. So it's not just taking the tops off the S's, it's taking the tops out of everything. Yeah, instead of it having a nice, it sounds like a... Yeah, like and in fact, in some places, S's are, S's are disappearing completely in some places, yeah. so Fascinating. Yeah, so it's it. We uh, I rang Andrew and went, "Well, you're a dickhead because you're running a DSer." And Andrew went, "I don't have a DSer." <laughs> <laughs> yes, so, and I don't use any plugins. Everything's right. outboard. So, uh, so well, I mean, do you guys know what I do on my end? Because you never even asked what I'm doing on my end. Okay, what do you do on your? <laughs> Do we really I'm, want to know? I'm offended. <laughs> if, we, if we can't see you, do we really want to know what you're doing, George? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> draw, draw an imaginary picture. Draw us a picture. <laughs> Are we sitting comfortably, children? Yes. Okay. Well, I'm Mr. Frugal when it comes to stuff, and I'm using gear that is kind of collected in my lap over the last 20 years. Most of it I didn't buy. It's just castaways and things I found from other studios along the way, but I'm using... Um, a mic processor um, between my mic and the console, and it's made by Roland. It's called an MMP2, and it's discontinued for quite a few years now. Um, and it's a stereo mic preamp with processing, digital processing. So it's got expansion and compression and EQ and all that kind of fun stuff. And I'm using a decent amount of it. I'm, I I cheat with an expander a lot because I'm not in a great sounding studio and I don't want anybody to know. 
Um, so yeah, fair have, enough. Have an expander on there and and some compression. And the EQ is pretty close to flat. I, I'm sure I have a high pass filter on there too. Um, but um, I'm monitoring myself through the processor, so I certainly hear what would be going to you. And it does definitely doesn't sound de-est or no, squashed no. in any way. So should be okay. It's not what you're sending us. It's what's well, it comes to me fine. Yeah, and then I I stick I lay everybody up in Pro Tools, yeah. and then I bounce out a stereo mix for Andrew that sounds fine, but yeah. so and then I deliver it to him via Hightail, uh huh, and he downloads it on his his end, and he's got this lifeless everything sounds like everything cut below about oh, maybe eight or nine k, oh, sorry above I should say everything above eight or nine k just disappears, and it sounds like this almighty DS has just been. Stuck That's across crazy. The top of everything. That sounds stuff. impossible. But yeah. I, I, yeah. I, I, if we don't know why it's happening, I could think of a possible theory as to how to prevent it. Mm-hmm. Without understanding why it's happening, um, are you sending the files just as they are, like a wave with nothing? They're not zipped into a zip file or anything, right? No, they're just mixed down. So I, so basically, I clean up. Right. So if, if one of us cough behind someone else while they're talking, I'll cut all that out. Yeah, but um, you're, but you're sending a wave file, right? It's just not sending a, a stereo or, mix. Yeah, so basically, yeah. there's four tracks of audio. I mix those down to a stereo file and forward that onto AP. Yeah, because my hunch is that that file is somehow being bastardized in the process of being transferred. I have mm-hmm. no idea how or why. Agreed. But what I'm thinking is that if you zip it, it's now basically encoded, not encoded, That's but it. it's uh, yeah. What's the word? Is somehow um, protected, yeah, it's wrapped maybe? Up. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. It's wrapped yeah. up in another it's format. Not a bad idea. And so maybe yeah. that will preserve the quality. It won't make yeah. the file much smaller because waves mm. don't zip down much, but maybe try that next time. I think I'm um, going to do that. That's a great idea. And then if Robert was here, he would certainly be talking about their utility called Source Zip, which yes. I don't know if it has any utility for us. Um, moving from stereo to mon- uh, stereo to multi-track and black and black back and forth, but my understanding is Source Zip is designed to do basically just that, but a lot more elaborate, where it preserves the track format and the you know mm. the file namings. You know, just it makes it a cleaner way to move projects between studios. Mm. He, I wish he was here to explain it better, but. Well, maybe Robert might um, maybe Robert might donate a copy to me for the show. Do you think? I bet he would. You know, Robert. Yeah. Now you have no choice. Yes, it's public. <laughs> You've been called out. You have to provide us sources. That's it. That's his payment for not turning up this week. That's, That's right. Exactly right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm, I do, just just as an aside to that, George, I'm just having a look at the MP2 here on uh, on Google. That's fascinating. I've never seen one of those before. Yeah, the MMP2. Yeah. By Roland. Yeah. 24-bit 96K, yeah? yeah? Mic model. The mic modeling preamp. And yeah, it has a mic yeah. modeling feature, which Roland was doing way back in, you know, kind of the early days of that technology. And I don't wow. use that feature. To me, mic modeling is, which is a whole other topic. We can go on if you'd like oh, to. Yeah. I've we could go another day. Think It's something I've been thinking about lately because I watched a Stephen Slate interview, um, which creates the those virtual microphone systems. Um, but it, it has a mic modeler that I don't use. I'm just using it because I want to have an expander and a little bit of compression on my mic so I can get away with having my Mac Mini and everything in just one room and, you know, not have proper isolation. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah it works really well. 
So where did you yeah. find that? On in a garage sale somewhere or something? Man, you know, I just, I just, I, I've, I've spent time on websites like Gear Sluts, of course, over the years. But I've also Googled tremendously, like the next cool thing to set up in a home voice actors studio. You know, what channel strips and such and so forth. And this thing just popped up on the radar. I've had it for at least five or six years, so yeah, right. I can't remember where I saw it. But when I, by the time I heard it, it was way out of production and no longer considered really desirable. So I think I only paid probably $150, maybe less for this thing. So wow, um, it's doing a fantastic job for what it is. Yeah, it's fascinating. I've got a question for you, George. If you're on Gear Sluts, I'm on Gear Sluts, what's your name? Oh, <laughs> um, you know what? I have not been on Gear Sluts for quite some time. I would have to log in and actually look and see what my name on there is. But one of my old usernames that I came up with when I was in college that I still use to this day on certain sites is, um, I'm typing it in now, is Soundgun. So oh. if you ever see Soundgun anywhere, uh, yep, it just auto-logged me in as Soundgun on uh, Gear Sluts. So look at that. Uh -huh. Everybody now knows. I gave it away. Soundgun. Because there's so many because I'm El Cid, E-L-S-I-D. Okay. I've seen um, that name too. I know I've seen oh, that name around. I've, I've sort of dropped a few things in there which have been so way off the mark. But anyway, <laughs> just my opinion. Um, but uh, there's a couple of people on there. I think there's one called Fraser. Mm -hmm. I don't know what his real name is. Uh, but there's a couple of guys. And they're obviously, I think Fraser's actually works in a store or something and he's a, a techie dude. I think that's you know, he's like he's right into gear, selling gear and fixing gear. Yeah. Uh, but there's a couple of other guys and I, I read their stuff and it's like, I reckon they're really like a high-end audio engineer, like record engineer. You can just tell by the way they talk and the things they talk about. Yeah. You can tell that they're in like, you know, Sunset Sound or, you know, somewhere like that and they're a really well-known audio engineer, like a Chicarelli or a bloody, um, you know, those kind of guys. Uh, but I'd love to know who they are but they hide behind these pseudonyms, so mm -hmm. you never know who they are. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, yeah, if you yeah. see anything Soundgun, I don't know if there's anybody else out there with the same name, but I um, I think I came up with it in college. I wanted to have a sound that was accurate and powerful, so I was Soundgun. Oh, <laughs> oh go thought ahead. went into it. <laughs> a little bit of sound, yeah, yeah. yes. <laughs> I just take Robbo yes. and stick a couple of numbers after it. <laughs> Robbo yeah, yeah. 3869. Yeah, that's right. Robbo 62, Robbo 77, Robbo right. 428. Ah. <laughs> it's funny God Funny with it. nicknames, isn't it? I mean, we're getting off topic here, but I, I, when I first left full-time radio and went freelance, I went from rock and roll radio at Triple M where I'd been for 13 years and I ended up um, working for the ABC, which is the government broadcaster here, um, their youth station called Triple J, which is a national youth network. And um, it was my first day there freelancing. I was there for a couple of weeks and I'm walking down the corridor, a couple of CDs in my hand, heading back to the studio to make a promo and the program director standing at the other end of the corridor going, Darren, Darren, Darren. <laughs> and finally he goes, Robbo. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, I'm so used to Robbo. I was just even zoned out to Darren, wasn't even thinking. Of course, so, yeah. being at the go. ABC, they could have called you Mr. Robertson. Or that's right, exactly. Yeah. Indeed. Yeah. But yeah, that's, um, yeah, that was always a classic. Now, talking gear sluts, though, I did see something pop up on gear sluts, and I sent a link 
to you, George and Robert, because um, once again, the road thing is intriguing me. Um, they've just launched a few different microphones, a few new ones. But the one that looks really interesting for voiceover is the NT49. Mm. Um, and I did see that mentioned on Gear Sluts as well. A couple of guys have said, has anybody seen one yet? Or Nathan Thomas 49, NT49? Uh, yeah. And, yeah. Mm-hmm. November Tango. November, that's the proper, yes, the proper. Yeah, phonetic alphabet. Yes. Nathan. Uh, Ooh, yeah. Sexy November looking little Tango. beast, isn't it? It's really, because it, you remember they did the uh, the ribbon, the, the NTR was the f- the ribbon microphone they did. And that was the first one with that kind of shape. And then now they've done the uh, NT50, which is an omni microphone, comes in pairs, and that's for recording like orchestras or that where you need an omni mic. And then off that, they've done a, a variable capsule for that body as a, a condenser mic, oh. which looks really, really interesting. I wonder how much the body cu- affects the sound because that's a big thing with Neumann. Like they they patented the shape of the head basket on the U sixty seven, for example. You know, and yeah, um, yeah, I find it intriguing. Um, and they've obviously done a lot of research and development. And I know the guy that we interviewed, Peter, who's um, the Belgian guy that um, joined them about a year ago, and he was involved in the the AI one, the little interface, yeah. has also been involved in the development of these microphones. So oh, yeah. I'm really curious what they're going to sound like. So I, I've put in a call to Rode just to see if they would let us borrow one just to check it out, but uh, haven't heard anything back as yet. Uh, but I shall keep you posted. But uh, Rode, you've been called really out officially re- right here on the <laughs> yeah, Pro so, Audio Studio. And Robert. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but, yeah, look, I'm, I'm really interested in what they're doing because they're, they're certainly taking on the big boys now. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. No, yeah. I'm, I've always been impressed with Rode. I even had a, I might have mentioned this before, I even had a dealership at one time when I was dabbling in selling equipment, which I won't do anymore. But um, they, and they were so nice to, to deal with a, just a guy, you know, it was just a guy installing gear. And they were happy to set me up as a dealer and let me resell their product and their distributor. I think their U.S. offices were in Santa Barbara or something, um, okay. not far away. And so I just, they were really nice to deal with, Road. Great company. Yeah. Yeah, so there you go. That's uh, another new mic. Have you come across any anything in the microphone area that has uh, caught your eye? Well, I, I was just mentioning, uh, maybe before we were on, went on the air, this whole, these virtual mic systems. And um, there's a couple of them out there now. There's the VMS from Slate Digital. And then there's the Townsend Labs Sphere P22, I think it is. Something 22. And they're, they're, they're both designed around the idea that you can take one microphone that's a known quantity and then from that microphone emulate any other microphone. And um, the Slate system, actually, they sell their own mic and their own preamp. The, the main thing that you're really buying, though, or buying into is the emulations. And it's totally done on native software. So I guess the advantage of it is that you don't have to use their preamp and you don't have to use any other extra hardware you just have to have the mic as long as you have an extremely flat preamp it'll work with really any preamp and um, then they emulate the microphone and the tests i've heard and the buzz in the business and these guys have been at it for a few years now is that it's it's pretty legit it's the real deal but it entirely relies on plugins so it's not a hardware solution as much as it is a software solution Whereas um, the Townsend Labs system is a little bit more, I don't know, hardware related. 
Um, and the other thing that makes the Townsend Labs mic quite different is that it has two capsules um, and each capsule has its own output. So it kind of appears like a stereo mic, but whereas your typical cardioid or switchable pattern mic, you know, has two capsules, but then the, the two capsules are blended together and phased in and out to make it an omni or a cardioid or a figure eight. With the sphere system, those two capsules are completely and independent, completely independently controllable within the software. So you can shape the pickup pattern and do all kinds of wacky stuff in the computer after you've recorded something. So you can basically steer the pickup pattern where you want and on all and any all any side of the microphone. And you can change the impedance of the microphone, all sorts of stuff from a control panel. So that's kind of the new technology, the bleeding edge of microphone design, I think, right now is that sort of technology. And I haven't demoed these in my own world where I've gotten to play with them yet, but it's definitely on the radar. Look up Townsend Labs. Townsend, T-O-W-N-S-E-N-D, labs.com. And you'll find the Sphere L22, which sells for $1,500 US, whereas its competitor, the uh, Slate Digital mic with preamp and software is a thousand dollars so okay so what he's saying is there 1500 yeah the sphere is more expensive but it's also more sophisticated yeah yeah but those are the i mean in terms of anything that seems entirely new to me Mm. those are some of the entirely new ideas um Mm. other than that like um I'm trying to think what's like a game. I mean, I can't think of any mic that's coming along and saying, okay, everybody stop using the 41.6 and go get this. Like um, (laughs) the 41.6. Yes, I remembered. Um, (laughs) We've created our own monster. Yes. We have. I I haven't found the mic that's truly dethroned it. I mean, I'm always hearing about this mic or that mic that people tend to, you know, might favor. But uh, yeah. it's amazing how often someone will have that mic and something else. And then I'll ask them, which one are you using most of the time? And they'll say the 416. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if yeah. it's momentum, laziness. Uh, it just works. Familiar- familiarity. It's obviously not a bad mic. Um, it's, a, it's a very good mic, but uh, it's not a flat mic. It has a sound. It just happens mm, to be yeah. a sound that works well for a lot of voices on a lot of kinds of stuff. That's right, exactly, and it's it's true because I've I mean I've got a, a TLM one hundred and three in the cupboard, but I rarely drag it out. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, if 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 I've booked a voice talent, which is rare for me, most of my voice recording I'll, I'll dry hire a studio um, rather than do it here in a in a project studio, but. Um, I, I, I rarely drag it out. It sits there and whenever I'm recording this sort of stuff or my wife's recording voiceovers, the Sennheiser's the go-to. Yeah. I mean, so, it's also yeah, more so. advantageous in a home studio scenario where maybe your noise floor isn't the greatest. The 416 will That's reject right. more background noise and has some yeah. practical reasons too. Um, but yeah, another mic true. that's not that people are getting interested in because they want a Neumann but maybe not want to spend 1000 plus is the TLM-102. And... It's my, I was just talking to a friend of mine, voice actor and fellow techie head, Graham Spicer. And he said he finds himself using the TLM-102 now more than anything. Um, and he likes it because it has a, a more of a flat response until you get to the top where it has a big, has a bump at the top. Whereas the 103 
kind of has a rise in the upper mid-range and has a little bit more of that U87 mid-range bump. That doesn't always work for everybody. It can be a little nasal or a little honky sounding, and uh, the 102 doesn't have that. So that's an interesting alternative if you're looking for a different flavor. It's also more affordable. I just looked that up. Um, 850 bucks US. Yeah, that's the that's the affordable Neumann. <laughs> yeah, um, that's right. You know, and I've heard of a lot of voice actors being recommended that mic uh, for their first studio setup. And nothing wrong with that recommendation. I just, I guess because I'm kind of a cheapskate, I don't usually recommend an $850 mic for the first voice actor studio. I'm going to st- recommend something 300 or less usually, like the NT1 or an AT4040 uh, or something like that. But um, the 102 is a different take on their the mic, the Neumann sound. It's a, it's a different sounding mic than a lot of the others. Yeah, well, one of the mics I use, and you probably look this one up as well, is um, I have a couple of Microtech Gefels here. Um, and the first Microtech Gefell I bought was the M930. Right. And if and if you have a look at the pattern on that, on you know, because it's fixed, you know, cardioid. Um, but have a look at the um, have a look at the pattern on that. You'll see what I mean. It's pretty flat. Uh, it's a perfect, beautifully made microphone. Oh, too. and they have a bunch of them. Do you know which variation you have? Uh, just the M nine thirty. But I did get the um, I did get the limited edition one when it, that came out, which was two thousand. Ah, you know what? Which was the George Neumann eightieth anniversary one. You know what's really awesome. If you want to look at and really geek out and compare microphones, are you familiar with a website called recordinghacks.com? Oh, yeah. Yep, yep. He makes his own microphone and he does, too. he does. He makes several. Um, but what's cool is they have the ability to look at a frequency response and then overlay another microphone's response. It's really cool. So if you're looking wow. at, I'm doing it right now, if you're looking at a mic like the 930, you'll see in the specifications area the curve. If you click on it, it pops out a window. And then in that window, there's an empty box that says select another mic. And you just start typing the name of the mic and it pops up. And so I typed in Cat E100S because this is one of my favorite mics that it just sounds surprisingly good. It's U.S. made for people that find that intriguing. And uh, it's under 500 U.S. And it sounds fantastic. Very low noise. And I I wanted to line those two up. So, because when you mentioned that and I saw the curve, it said, that looks like the E100S curve. And it's very similar. Um, they just have their peaks at a little bit different spot. The 930 peak is up higher. It's above 10K, which I kind of like, actually. And the um, the CAD's peak is maybe at like 8K. So, uh, but other than that, they're really similar. Very flat across the board otherwise. Yeah. I also like that that 930 is so small which actually the 102 is also a very compact mic. You may not notice it without in context, but the 102 is maybe almost half the size of a 103 physically. Um, so it's the one, the 930 and then 102 are very similar in shape, which is kind of nice for voiceover because it doesn't obstruct your copy as easily. Oh, the M930 is great. And, and also it was the mic I used to take on the road with me um, because if I'm using like the Porter mm-hmm. booth, it's perfect. Because it's small. It just sits in there. You know, it doesn't get in the way yeah. at all. I'll have to remember that one. I, I, I've heard that one come up. A voice actor here in the U.S. who does a lot of blogging named Paul, named, uh, Paul Strickwerda uh, is a really big fan of that microphone. Well, you know, the funny thing is about Paul, years and years and years ago, I did a thing, I think it could have been on Gear Sluts or somewhere, and I mentioned that uh, 
that the, the uh, chain I used was uh, an M930 and a Grace M101. And that was from advice from a guy here in Melbourne. Mm-hmm. And I put that up there and he, <laughs> he ended up, because when I spoke to him about the, the microphone setup, he, he'd actually won one in a yes, lottery right. or something. He won it. Yeah. Or somewhere. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, but he, had bought, he went and bought the M101. He said, I, and I said, what, what made you buy the M101? He said, oh, I read it somewhere that, that, you know, that microphone and that preamp worked really well together and they're fantastic. And I said, yeah. I that. <laughs> you get to stake claim to that one, sir. Yes, I do. <laughs> but it's a, it's a that is a really really nice uh, mm-hmm. chain to have the M930 and a M101. Nice. It's beautiful, ultra Very clean. clean. Um, uh, we do have a special guest actually live on the line, just for a change. It is, <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> uh, we've got. Ex-Pat Aussie, who now lives in Hollywood, and he's working in film and television doing audio. Yeah, an old uh, radio buddy of mine and yours. Indeed, indeed. Yeah. It's David Rains. So, uh, so Dave, why don't you, um, to get us started, why don't you give us an idea of your average day at work then at the moment? What are you doing? What are you, who are you working with? What are you doing? What are you working on? Oh, uh, it varies quite a lot. Um, I have a couple of different roles here. Um, primarily, I, I used to get hired a lot as a re-recording mixer, and now I get hired to both mix and supervise. Um, re-recording is, is what they call when you're um, when you're you know mixing a television show or a feature film. So in that role, I get hired by either by the major studios or by a certain production. And you know I'll come into the facility and work with the crew and help steer the the mix and obviously do the mixing as well. Um, but then I also man. get hired as a sound supervisor, which is usually someone who's involved much earlier in the show uh, or in the movie um, and you come in and you work with the picture editor and the director and composers and sometimes the screenwriters, you know, budget the sound, hire the crew. Often I choose the facilities to be used in collaboration with the filmmakers and then sort of execute the direction of the soundtrack. And then as part of that, sometimes I'll do the mixing as well. So does that happen before production even begins? Sometimes it does. It's it's great when it does. It's rare. Um, I have a few filmmakers that insist on me being involved while they're screenwriting and definitely in pre-production. Um, a lot of studio productions don't. They're just not set up that way. Uh, it really takes the filmmakers pushing that direction for it to happen. That's fascinating because I just have a very small stint in production mixing. I never got to the union level, but I had a taste of that for a few years. So it's interesting to, interesting to hear how what you do fits into the timeline of the sound post on the film. Yes, and I would say that I've done about a day or maybe two days of actual production mixing. Um, that was enough, I right? Don't have, <laughs> I, don't preclude, I don't profess to have the skills to be a production mixer. And But what I have done is spent, you know, I worked on one series up here that was shot up in Canada and I worked with that production crew, producers and, and everyone else, but also that sound production crew for about five years straight. And I used to fly myself up to Canada on my own dime every year before we went into post, but while I was shooting to just go on the set and see what those guys were doing because they were amazing. Um, wow. And they're all good friends of mine, but like I said, I don't profess to be and be the guy who can do that. Um, when I'm involved in, you know, produ- pre-production and, you know, prior to the film shooting, it's from a 
the perspective of how are we going to make this film feel emotionally? What subtext are we going to bring to it from a sound perspective? What can sound bring to the screenplay and to the perspective of the shooting that will mean that it is a more or less emotional journey for the audience, depending on what the filmmaker wants? So for your for your day or the average day working on a film, what does that entail? I mean, because uh, for a lot of people who are listening and probably thought you were on the faders doing a mix, but obviously we just worked out you're not. So what do you actually do? Um, I do do that, absolutely. Um, and when I'm on a mix stage and I'm mixing, it's a standard mix day. Having said that, the standard mix day here is, is a minimum of nine hours uh, at the console um, or running the room. Um, and that process of mixing is broken into sort of parts, you know, the dialogue pre-dubs, the effects pre-dubs, music pre-dubs, etc. And then what we call the final, which is bringing all those elements together and working out what the final print is going to sound like. Um, so, yes, I will do that. But more lately, certainly the last couple of years, I've been doing a lot more supervising. So a standard day, it can vary tremendously. Um, I could be out recording animals or vehicles or weapons or any, you know, key story element that needs a library built for the production. I could be cutting, you know, editing dialogue. I could be editing, you know, sound effects. Mostly I have a crew who who does that stuff. Um, But as a supervisor, I'm skilled in all those areas. So I will usually get my feet wet in all those areas um, to a greater or lesser degree. Um, working a lot with actors is often something I do. Um, for instance, I just did an action picture for an Indonesian director last year, um, which we finished down at Paramount, and I spent two weeks in Jakarta shooting ADR. ADR, for those of you that don't know, is um, uh, dialogue replacement. So getting the principal actors to maybe reread lines to add to them to clarify story, Or in the case of this film, it was a big action film and there were groups of people running around the jungle trying to kill themselves, or kill each other rather. It was about creating tension in the track in terms of hearing the other people moving around the, you know, the jungle. (laughs) Gosh, I can imagine the challenge of getting any kind of usable dialogue in that kind of an environment. (laughs) I mean, I'm sure they're better at it now than they ever have been in the past, but it's still got to be very difficult. Actually, that production in particular had really good production sound. Um, some of the things that production mixers do, I don't know how they do it, but but what they do and the tracks that they're able to bring into post are unbelievable. But what it usually takes um, for that to happen is for the production to treat, you know, to give them some authority on the set and to sort of back them up. Because if you look at a decent-sized film production, there might be 100 people on the set, of which only, you know, four or five of them might be cast. Um, And there's, even on a big film, there's only three sound people on set. So there's there's 90-odd other people that are really just related to the camera department and everything associated with picture. So, you know, wardrobe, production production design, everything else. So all those people are focused on what you see and there's only really three people on the set focused on what you hear. 
And so just the physics of the environment and the physics of the number of people on set make it very difficult for a production sound crew to get good sound unless they have a, an entire production from the producers on down that respects their role. If they don't, then the track won't be any good. It's interesting I've seen because when you look at a, fil- a sound stage or, or a, actually a film set, <clears throat> they're not designed particularly well for audio. So it must be a huge challenge if you're the audio person on set. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. From my perspective, yeah, I, you know, it was it was ridiculous at times. That and I was again, I was working at the low end of the of the spectrum budget wise. Um, but generally, I understand it's probably not that different going up the food chain. Um, you know, you're. You're just like he said. I mean, I always felt like we were the redheaded stepchilds of the uh, of the production. <laughs> you know, if we were lucky, we had two sound people on set at that budget, mm-hmm. and it was uh, getting it was very difficult to get your to to get them to even give you room tone at times. You know, let alone uh, anything else. So it, yeah, it was very challenging to get usable sound. Yeah, it's very. It's and it, like I said, it all comes from the top, and it all comes from. You know, the great production crew I worked with up in Canada, they did a pilot that they sh- they were shooting mostly in Calgary, but and they were based in Calgary, which is in the middle of Canada. Um, but they went out and shot a pilot on the West Coast in Vancouver, and I ended up mixing that pilot, and those tracks were just as bad as all the other tracks I've received in television. And that told me, oh, you know what? It's not the production crew. It's the producers. They didn't give them authority. They didn't back them up on the set. They didn't give them you know, an environment that promotes the ability to record good sound. And so, therefore, the sound isn't any good. Yeah, we. I mean, we used digital cameras back in the early 2000s that sounded like a refrigerator. When do you decide it's time in your in your role to go out and get elements, go do field recording? And because and, obviously you must have some massive sound libraries to draw from. It's um, it's a collaborative decision um, and, you know, because it always involves spending money. So, you know, you've got to get the production to pay for it. Um, right. And, you know, like, and every, you know, film is a – one of the guys here at Warner Brothers said to me years ago, he said, you know, it's a handmade product from start to finish, film in general, but sound also. Um, and so – you look at every single piece of, in in the case of sound, every piece of sound that goes into a track, and if it is not handmade the right way for an emotional response, that is the right emotional response you're looking for in that scene or that moment or that emotional beat, then it's not the right sound. You know, you can have, I've used really sort of old, you know, I've used sound ideas, series 1000 sound effects in big movies, not because they're terribly great, recordings as it relates to these days recordings but they're the right sound for that emotion um so in terms of making a decision about whether i go and shoot something it comes down to do we have the right sounds for the emotion we're looking for in this in this moment and if we don't then we we generally go and try and record it my sound library at home or you know my personal library which i've been building for nearly two decades now um is pretty large, but it's not. It's only about the quarter of the size of a major studio's sound library. Um, yeah. And even then, with a major studio um, behind me, I often will make the decision or try and get the production to get us involved in recording. You know, something new. Um, for instance, I did a documentary. I was at Universal at the time, and 
you know, they've got a pretty big library. It's, it's, I don't know, six, seven hundred thousand sounds, I guess. And this documentary was about elephants, and it was about the fact that elephants are going to be extinct in the wild in Africa by the end of this decade, unless something changes. And so the filmmaker was very empathetic towards elephants. Had spent several years in Africa, you know, recording the film, shooting the film. But of course, in the process of acquiring the footage they used for the film when you shoot documentary style it's generally pretty rough in terms of soundtrack and so we had these beautiful emotional shots of elephants but the sound wasn't anywhere near intimate enough for those moments and so I convinced the picture editor to convince the director to give us some budget to go and record elephants and I wrangled I had five African elephants for about a day um at a sanctuary up near Monterey on the California coast. And we recorded these elephants and then, of course, brought them back in, you know, cleaned all the recordings up, put them in our library and then started editing them editing them in, into the picture. And the weird thing about it was, even though the filmmaker had made the decision to give us the budget to go and do it, she didn't really understand what it was going to do to her film. And that became obvious to me when we she came down to Los Angeles because they were cutting up in uh, Oregon. She came down to LA and we pressed play on the first reel to run the, the track with her and give her an idea of how it was coming together. And she pretty much cried through the whole reel. <laughs> wow. And, and it was about her emotional response to hearing the intimacy of these elephants and, and what elephants do when they are being very passive and very, uh, very human, actually. Um, and, it, you know, it's mostly the rumblings, not the trumpeting sound, but the rumblings and the mm -hmm. swishing of the trunk and those kind of sounds. Subtle she sounds. had kind of forgotten what those sounds were like and what they would, would do for an audience and obviously what they did for her. That's fantastic. Yeah, wow. That's nice, yeah. isn't it? But it was, it was very much a collaborative decision. But the, getting back to your original question, the first thing we do is try and use the, you know, the material we have in the, in sure. the sound library. Mm -hmm. um, but if we can't find it, we'll... Go and look for it. It's funny though, isn't it? I mean, I actually came across something not on the scale of what you're talking about, but I, I was actually doing a comedy sketch for a radio station I do some work for up in Singapore. And it, there was this sort of scene in inverted commas in this radio sketch where someone walked into the room and I couldn't find a door. I know it sounds stupid, but I couldn't find a door opening and closing that sort of seemed to make it work. Um, and I remembered geez, we were talking about our radio days before the interview, but about 20-odd years ago, my old boss in Brisbane had this door that he used to use for the breakfast show when one of the characters would sort of, in inverted commas, enter and leave the studio. I, we, used to call it the, we used to call it the comedy door because it just it, it's perfect and I actually ended up ringing him and getting him to send it to me because purely because I couldn't find anything else that was right. And, and, and that's the magic of it, isn't it? Is finding that sound that is just absolutely spot on perfect in each and every way for, for that, that scene, right? I was, I was going to say, I heard a great story the other day about the movie Red October. And there's a scene in the movie where the, the submarine's sunk and there's kind of like a fan kind of noise and just, well, just that eerie kind of... The silent drive. Yeah, the silent... Yeah, that's it. And uh, every time the sound guys put the sound in, the director would come down and say, nut, nut, and it went on and on and on. And it got to the point where the guy who was doing the sound and went up and sat on the roof and had a ciggy, um, while he was up there, uh, he heard the fans on the rooftop air conditioning. 
went downstairs, grabbed his recorder, recorded the fans on the air conditioner unit on the roof, came back, processed it, threw it back in. As the director's leaving, he said, can you come and check this out before you go? Bang, that was it. That was the sound they ended up using in the movie. You know, it's also interesting about that movie, and I only know this because I know the sound supervisor. Uh, she's a very, very good friend of mine, and I was very lucky to meet her almost before I moved to Los Angeles. And around the time of when I moved to Los Angeles was the 20th anniversary. Actually, it was like four or five years after I moved here. It was the 20th anniversary of that film. And the studio, which is Paramount, and the Academy, the Motion Picture Academy, put on a screening. It was only one screening of the print. And they restored the print and they played it at the Academy Theatre here in Los Angeles. And when they were talking afterwards, um, the production sound mixer was there and he told a story about how they gathered the production sound on that film because they did win an Oscar for the sound. And someone said, well, how did you get the, you know, such good production sound? And his options were boom or plant mics. On most of the production, he couldn't use a boom because all the sets were built at, at the studio and they were all submarine sets, so they were all really, really uh, short and, you know, small, right? So he couldn't get a mic in over the top and he could barely get a mic in under the bottom. So he ended up putting plant mics all the way through all the sets and he would mix the track with these plant mics. Wow. And he asked everyone in the audience, he said, you know, given the perspective of we're in, you know, 2011 right now, whatever it was, how many tracks do you think came off that set? And the answer is one track of sound. Yeah, yeah, wow. wow. So he mixed he mixed it live to Nagra, one track, and they won an Academy Award. Wow, isn't that That's mind-boggling. I mean, he yeah. must have had a, a board there on you know on his cart and just was like orchestratingly moving the faders as the actors moved through the set and. Oh my right. gosh! And you, and you can Fantastic. imagine he would have to know the script better than any actor on the set. Yeah, if he, yeah. The, if he didn't know the script, he'd miss the line. Yeah, that's right. Oh man, yeah, that's God, amazing. And, and they're not gonna—they're probably not gonna do seven or eight takes until you get the mix right. Yeah, I'm guessing. You know, <laughs> I was gonna <laughs> say no, keep no, it's, no, it doesn't work. It doesn't work like that. I don't think. I think <laughs> no. the, the sound—the sound crew rarely on a, in a production rarely gets the opportunity to. Yeah. Stop Ask for another. The camera. Yeah. Yeah. No. You do you, you don't. If you do, you're in trouble. <laughs> you put a boom shadow in the frame. It's like uh, ooh. It's the coldest shoulder on the planet. Is that it's a tough feeling. I can't imagine <laughs> yeah. I can't imagine uttering the words I forgot to press record. <laughs> oh, God. Did yeah, it's happened. Well, yeah, did. and there's so there's what you're saying about, yeah, you're going to get the cold shoulder, but you're going to get the cold shoulder from 100 people, and there's only yeah. two or three of you. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's right. But when they want to roll a duct tape, you got it on your cart, baby. They love you all of a sudden. That's right. <laughs> and in that production, you're going to get the cold. You're going to get the cold shoulder from Sean Connery. Who, I know. I was ready. You know, he's a pretty tough individual, I'd imagine. Oof. Yeah, I can't imagine he'd take too much shit. Well, let's yeah, face yeah. it. You know, he's licensed to kill, after all, right? But he's, oh he's, he's not licensed to do a Russian accent. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have a. I have a. I have a total geeky question. Uh, insider question. I don't know how my insider this is, but. How often do you get to use, or how often do you choose to use, the Wilhelm scream? 
Does everyone know what the Wilhelm scream yeah, is? Yeah, I know what it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Explain it for that, explain it for our listeners, though, Rainsy. Go. On. I don't know when it was first used, but it it, it was is it like from the fifties or the sixties? Yeah, uh, well, I think it's earlier. Than yeah, that. I was going to say blood blood curdling. Curdling. Scream, Yeah, yeah. yeah it's, it's I guess in its day it was it was blood curdling. These days it just sounds sounds kind of silly. But that's <laughs> it sounds corny. It's been overused. <laughs> I don't use. I haven't actually used it. Although I've worked on. I've been at the mix console when. Other supervisors have brought it to the stage and put it up in the tracks, and we all have a chuckle about it, of course. <laughs> right. I don't make it part of my bag of tricks. <laughs> There's that sound, and the other one that's complete. I don't know the name of it, but there is a passing semi truck horn sound. Uh, the Doppler horn. Dun, dun. Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've heard that thing. Oh God, hundreds of times. I think. Yeah. Um, well, all oh, you no. need is, yeah. you know... And, I, and every time you go to a wide shot in the desert, you yes. hear the same eagle. <laughs> That's know. right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. yeah. But I love it and, when and they... Every, uh, and every time a, a bad guy advances on a on a protagonist in a film, you, you know, you hear a gun cock. And, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes. There's, there's yeah. some certain Hollywood things that just have to happen. I love it when uh, <laughs> someone who's doing the sound has no idea about cars and you'll have a car in shot and the sound, you know, if you know that car is not the sound of that car. <laughs> yeah, it, the car really sounds like... Yeah. And the sound of the picture is like... <laughs> you know, it's like a huge V8, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah but right. I mean, they it, wanted to sound more ballsy, you know. Yeah. You could even go back to your story about the hunt for Red October, though, too, AP, and, and sort of say, well, hang on, it's the submarine's going into a silent drive. Why do we need a sound? But, you know, again, that's Hollywood. You've got to have something there. I'll tell you one thing. I don't know where... This will be interesting because, David, I'm going to ask you this, David, because I'm sure you've seen the movie. Um, but this movie has very little dialogue, but the sound to me was amazing. Have you seen Dunkirk? Oh, absolutely. And what do you, how do you Mind write the sound? Boy. Oh, my God. It, it, it was mixed about 100 feet from where I'm sitting right now. Oh, okay. And? Yeah, it, what were you going to ask me about it? Or yeah, yeah, yeah. How do you, how do you rate it? Um, it's a certain type of track, and and that filmmaker has been going down that route for a number of years. Um, I'm not sure that it's my taste in soundtrack, but having said that, I can absolutely appreciate the skill that it takes to get a track like that. I mean, they're an amazing crew. Richard King is amazing and um, Gary Rizzo and, and the guys who mix those tracks, they're, they're amazing. I mean, they're just amazing. And to be able to put a track together like that, I mean, Chris Nolan is a very, very powerful force, you know, and, and you have to be to be a director like that and to be at that sort of playing at that level. Um, so, it, you know, it, a lot of it comes to be able to create a track like that. You need a filmmaker like Chris Nolan or a Michael Mann, um, because it is an unusual track. Um, yeah. and there, and there are people who in the studio world may give you some resistance about how to, how to, you know, about whether you can print that track. Um, and it takes a filmmaker like a Chris Nolan or a Michael Mann, someone like that, to say, no, this is the way, this is the direction we're going, and and that's what you know. So more power to them to be able to create a track like that's extraordinary track. Yeah, and the Hans Zimmer, I mean, he did the music from memory, and um, I just found the whole thing incredibly suspenseful. And Hans Zimmer's soundtrack or his music was amazing. 
Yeah, I mean, he's you know he's been a bit of a Hollywood legend for about three decades now. Mm. Um, Indeed, yeah. yeah. Speaking of soundtracks, do you ever find yourself having an occasion to go over to the um, Eastwood scoring stage? Uh, it's in the next building over from where I'm sitting right now. Just I walk a different past it every day. World. I've yeah. been in there a couple of times. It's not my domain. Um, it's yeah. not somewhere I get to play around in. It's one of the things, though, that I love that that Warner Brothers has a scoring stage and continues to maintain it because and, and continues to, you know, pay for it and, you know, make it available yeah. to filmmakers because scoring stages have um, disappeared from L.A. Um, yeah. You know, the Todd, the Todd A.O. scoring stage in, uh, in Studio City, you know, that was John Williams' favourite, I heard, for a long time, and they tore that room down. Um, not 10 years ago. And, you know, Fox has still got a stage. Sony's got one. Obviously, uh, um, Warner Brothers does. Universal doesn't have a scoring stage anymore. Paramount doesn't have a scoring stage anymore. They took theirs down about 12 years ago. Um, Wow. So you ask about that stage. It's just great that they have one here and that they continue to have it. Um, I, I only mentioned it selfishly because I've been very fortunate enough to see it and sit in the room, in the scoring room during the recording of something one time. And it was unbelievable. I mean, just from a studio design perspective, the noise floor, it's so quiet. The moment the conductor lifts the baton and it does the downbeat, it's absolutely dead silent. And there's a hundred people sitting in there. It's just incredible. Just an amazing Mm. experience. Well, you're one up on me. I've never... I've never been in there when there's been uh, musicians playing. That, that must have been amazing. That was very lucky. I was. I happened to be with Don LaFontaine, who somehow got a piece of music recorded there um, so his wife, Nita, could sing this piece with the orchestra because I guess Don could do that kind of thing. And it was, it was <laughs> remarkable. It was really remarkable. I was Don- so lucky to be there. Don can do whatever he wants, I would have thought. Yeah, <laughs> he could. Hey, uh, Randy, I just want to go back on something you said a second ago, though I'm interested to to sort of follow up. The, you, you were talking about how um, directors seem to, or directors have a signature sound, not just for one movie, but uh, sort of a direction, an audio direction they follow in, in a bunch of movies. Is that what you were saying? Well, it's not a signature sound so much. It's just a style of filmmaking. Um, and, a st- and a derivative of that is the style of the soundtrack. Um, although in Nolan's case and in some, you know, great filmmakers, their sound impacts their film and their picture and their everything else as much as those things impact sound. Um, but he, he, you know, if you listen to the last sort of six films that he's done, really after the second Batman picture he did, there's been a definite sort of, this is the direction I'm going with my sound and the integration of those two things and the balance of those two, you know, sound effects, music and dialogue, the, the balance of those things. He's definitely chosen a path with that, um, which, you know, some people here and around the world, I'm sure, have, have sort of not agreed with it, um, but it's just the, the way he chooses to make his films. And in the case of Dunkirk in particular, I think it was... It was just an amazing, a great direction to go, you know. Mm. So what what sort of things might that entail? Is that a certain way that you treat sound effect or you treat dialogue or, or you know, in, in a bit finer detail without getting too technical, what sort of things would, would he be looking at? Um, 
there's certain things that he's done which are, you know, Hollywood has a, a there's a style here which is and it and it you know it starts from the script and so your 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 number one thing when you're working on a film, for the most part, you're always going to want to hear the dialogue, and at a filmmaker's risk, will they ignore that rule? Um, or at a filmmaker, you know, they're going to have they're going to get some pushback from someone if if someone in the process of finishing the film says, I can't hear those lines. And he has got got close to the threshold of acceptance and possibly over that threshold. Do you guys remember there was a character in one of the Batman films called Bane? Bane. Played by a char- Bane, yeah, played by a character named Tom Hardy. Uh, the actor was named Tom Hardy. Do you guys remember that yeah. character? Yes, yeah, I definitely. Do. Sorry. That, yeah. that name popped in the head when you mentioned that, Bane, yeah. Right, he has a mask on his head. And his That's dialogue right. was was quite difficult to hear in some of the mixing and the pre-dubs. I remember there was some back and forth. And I wasn't at Warner Brothers at the time, but I, I remember hearing about it in the community that there was kind of, and there might have been some press about it, you know, back and forth between the studio and the filmmakers about, well, we can't hear him, we want to hear him. Do we revoice him? Do we, you know, get him in to, you know, get him in to do some more? You know, how do we change that? Do we use the production track? Do we not? You know, there's a lot of back and forth about that. And he was, he wanted to push the boundaries of that and, and push that sort of Hollywood style of, you know what, you don't have to hear every line. So that's one of the things that he has chosen to do. And he does that, you know, he did that with the, um, at least I heard he did it with Interstellar. Um, there was some, once again, some press and some stuff in the, in the film community here in LA about how the music might be too loud in Interstellar. And people sort of saying, yes, it was, and some people saying it wasn't and all that sort of thing. That's just derivative, again, of him wanting to push those boundaries and say, I'm going in a different direction. This is yeah. this is not, you know, I'm not going to make that film. I'm going to make this film. This is the choice I choose to make. Yeah. It's funny. Um, thank you for encapsulating that. Was, that really yeah. helps to understand that. I was going to say, though, that was my takeaway from Interstellar, was that I actually came out of the theatre going, fuck, the music was loud. <laughs> there you go. It's yeah. interesting. I want to know what you, um, you've worked on. I mean, the elephant story is fantastic. So that's clearly something that you're proud of. Um, but what's another great example of something you've had a lot of your fingers all over uh, that uh, we should check out? <laughs> oh, gosh. Um, I don't know. That depends on what sort of films you, you want. You can look at my IMDb and see if there's anything. I'll tell you what, Rainsy, I'll make it easy for you, mate. I've got one of your old promos on a DAT here at the back of the studio, one of your old Triple M promos. I'll just drag that out, will I? <laughs> I've actually still got some dads from my radio days. I don't even know if they play anymore. Well, I've got yeah. them sitting in storage somewhere. I'm in the same boat. I've got a whole, I've got a whole bunch of dads sitting at the back of the room that I haven't touched in probably 15 years. So it'd be interesting to see if they go in the dat player or not. I've heard the dads don't last that long, actually. No, they probably don't. Yeah, I, don't I figured either. they'd be oxidised by now. Yeah. Well, yeah. you could just microwave them. <laughs> well, that's all we used to do with the reel-to-reel. Stick that's it in right. the microwave, Absolutely. 30 seconds, one Indeed. run. That's it. Dub. Yeah. Get it or lose it. I, there's a couple of films that I've worked on that, you know, I mean, I've worked on a lot of, like the Elephant film, the documentary. I don't think it's even been released worldwide. Um, it certainly played, you know, the president here, President Obama saw it and made some changes I think based on that and a lot of other input he was getting at the time to import of uh, illegal ivory into this country, um, you know, that documentary was played 
for a lot of world leaders and, and at the UN and various other places because the filmmaker is a journalist and she really, she made the film to affect change. She didn't make a film to make, you know, to have a big audience. Um, so I'm proud of that film because of what it meant and I, I'm also proud of it because of the collaboration and the fact that from an experience I got to go and, you know, work with five African elephants for a day and walk under them and record them and, I mean, sure. it's just... It's just an incredible experience. Yeah. Um, I've worked on some films that would have been released in Australia that I think are really good tracks, but I wasn't necessarily the lead sound guy on them. I worked on a film called Unbroken, um, <laughs> which was actually filmed in Australia. Yeah. Um, and it's Brief a fun. really you've, – you've seen it? Yeah. Yeah, I can't say I oh. have, but George is saying he has, yeah. Wow. Uh, it. I liked it a lot because – it was only made a couple of years ago, and it was made for a reasonable size studio budget, but it's not a film about men in tights. Um, and for, for I was just thankful to be on a production that was, to me, the sort of epitome of a big Hollywood blockbuster without being about superheroes. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, a kind of a classic canvas for a large picture. Um and I think the sound on that film is great, not because I was involved. I was only a small part of it. But um, but it's a great track because the director chose, and the picture editors and everyone else, they chose not to have a lot of score in the film, which to me opens it up a lot more for opportunities for sound to help tell the story. And it's also the sort of story where you wouldn't want a lot of score. So it, it's a really great sound picture. Um, I, know, I worked on a picture called Patriot's Day. A couple of, uh, about 18 months ago, which is about the Boston Marathon bombing here in in the states. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. It's it's got like it's got a really good cast, um, and it's a really great. Uh, I I when you often when you work on a film, particularly a bigger production, as a sound person, you don't get to see it in its entirety if you're part of the editorial sound editorial crew. Um, it's just the way it comes together, and also with a picture like that. Um, with that filmmaker, you know, you guys are probably a little more used to a linear production workflow. In other words, you have a script and you have everything kind of like Robo. When you're doing an advertisement, a TV advertisement, they generally give you a lock cut, right? Yeah, that's it. Right. Well, that doesn't happen in in studio filmmaking anymore. Yeah. Right. Um, on that, on Patriot's Day, we had 11 reels of film, so 11 2,000 foot reels, so it's about 100. And, 40 minutes of film and we were getting two new cuts on each reel every day for months. Wow. Wow. And we were already in pre-dubs and finals. So we were conforming twice a day to every reel upwards of three, 4,000 tracks of sound every day, wow. all day long. <laughs> so when you're yeah. in that environment, you don't often get to see the picture, mm. you know, play mm. out. Mm. Mm. Um, and so that film, I was surprised at how much I enjoyed watching it, you know, six or eight months after it re was released. I sat down with my wife and watched it, and I was like, oh, this is actually, this is actually a really good film. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Do you think that's happening because technology allows that to happen? And so since the technology allows it to happen, they're more prone to do it? That's absolutely one of the factors, yeah. People... You know, produ you know, producers, studio executives, you know, anyone who's in part of the decision-making process, they know that we have all these great tools and we can do, 
you know, really amazing things with them. And um, the fact that you you can only cut a 35mm print once, you know, and no one's working in 35mm anymore. So these days you can make as many cuts as you want and you can just keep cutting, you know. And, yeah. and there's absolutely, for filmmakers that make the choice and executives and everyone else who make the choice to not make decisions, that is an option that they can now do. You know. Yeah, it's funny. I was talking with um, uh, Richard Lush, who lives in Sydney now. He's one of the Beatles engineers. He moved here back in the early seventies to set up EMI Sydney, and um, we were talking to him oh, a couple of years back and just going through a few things. And he talked about commitment. And he mentioned working on the soundtrack for the Sydney Olympics in two thousand. And uh, of course, he was in recording with the engineer using Pro Tools. And one of the questions was. Do you want to do another take on that? Yep, we're doing it. Give me another take. So they did another take. And then the engineer turned around and said, do you want me to keep the other one? And he said, well, if I wanted you to keep the other one, I wouldn't have asked for a new one. <laughs> <laughs> so it's all about commitment because you just end up in the end with like 35 takes of everything and you don't even know. You just, you're lost, completely yeah. lost. That's always And I fun. think that's an yeah. issue. Are you, finding, are you finding that, David, that that's an issue of people not willing to commit? Oh, uh, yeah, but it's only an issue if the production chooses to make it an issue. In other words, as soon as you change the scope, like let's say uh, an advertiser comes to you, Robbo, and says, here's our ad, you know, we're going to give you, I don't know, whatever it costs for you to work on a on an, an advertisement. And and then you, you do the work and maybe it takes a day or two or whatever. And then they come to you and they go, okay, well, Here's another cut. We want you to do all that work again, but do it on another cut. Well, now, of course, you're putting more time into the production. And if they don't also come to you and say, well, we should give you more money because you're going to spend more time on it, then that becomes an issue, right? Yeah, yeah. You've got yeah. to you pay the rent like everyone else. So, yeah. you know, film is the same. If if, if they, you know, if, uh, like on the, on the Patriots Day film, I don't know what the sound budget was. It was hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars, probably a couple of million dollars. And, you know, they just had to keep spending money because their filmmaker and their picture editor and, you know, the director, they kept making changes to the cut. Now, that's only a problem if they then say, we're not going to spend any more money because yeah. then you're like, okay, well, I guess just send the tracks to the stage that are out of sync and you'll have to figure it out there. <laughs> but... <laughs> Usually what happens is, you know, someone's going to be pretty unhappy in that situation. I don't know how much more time you have, but I, I, I wanted to get one more, and this might be a quickie, but I see you do a lot of television. Um, what is the, the real difference these days now in what you do between working for television versus for a feature? Uh, I don't really approach it any differently. It's still storytelling with sound yeah. and it's it's still the same. I mean, obviously the budgets are a little different and the schedules are very different. You know, budget is budget and, you know, the creative resources that come out of that are affected by those two things as in, as they are in every, every job in the world. So, you know, TV here in America is done a certain way um, and it's very difficult to get them to change that way of doing it. But within that way of doing it, there's structure and reliability and consistency, which is sometimes a welcome change from features because features are absolutely derivative of the filmmaker's personality to an extent. 
Um, and if they are a personality that wants to keep cutting their film right up to the printmaster, then that's going to sort of create a certain environment. And the budget and the number of people involved and the amount of time you spend on it is, is going to change as a result. Whereas television, they don't really do that. Although in the last couple of years, even that has changed, you know, the consistency of television. Because with these Netflix uh, shows, you know, shows that are being delivered to network Netflix-type um, networks, you know, you guys have probably seen this. When you turn on Netflix and you go to watch, you know, a Netflix series, you can watch the entire series in one sitting if you want. Oh, yeah. I know. It, yeah, it's, it's not like it's not like regular television where, you know, episode one is out this week and episode two will be available next week. And so as a result, um, like I did a series for, for Amazon a couple of years ago, which is a similar to a Netflix delivery, they deliver, as in the production delivers to the studio and subsequently the studio to the network, they deliver the entire series on one day. <laughs> so... Right, so you can imagine it's like an eight-hour movie. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, it's you know, on a series; it's ten hours or yeah. fifteen yeah. hours, right? So you're delivering instead of one hour every week, you're delivering ten hours in one day or in one week. Now, usually, a smart production will try and schedule that so that they are turning out one hour every week. But going back to your question earlier, guys, if if no one makes a decision. <laughs> You could have 10 unlocked episodes three days from delivery. Yeah. That's yeah. right. And I've worked on shows like that. Right. Yeah. So that's Do the main think- difference is, is schedule and, and, and um, you know, the way they structure the productions. Do you think because the budgets over the years have got bigger and um, there's two different genres now, it's independent films and there's, you know, big production studio films, do you find there's more fear uh, involved in the big studios? Um, I'm not sure if I'm really qualified to answer that question. I mean, you know, like the head of a studio would be someone who could answer that maybe and someone with a sort of a perspective on on the history of filmmaking. I, I think what is, and this is just me being the guy that reads a lot of stuff about, you know, like when I worked in radio, one of the reasons I left radio and chose to go and do something else, well, the main reason was I wanted to challenge myself creatively. The number two or maybe the third reason why was I had been reading a lot of, you know, the Financial Times and and I read a lot of different perspectives on business and the marketplace. And I could see that the radio advertising pie was getting, or the the radio section of the advertising pie was getting smaller. Even in the, the short, you know, eight, nine years that I worked in radio, every time they put up that that pie chart which showed, you know, print, television, newspapers, outdoor, radio was getting smaller every year. And I was like, well, this can't be good for my job. Mm. One day they're going to get rid of my job because no one's going to want to pay for it. You know, yeah. radios, radios, it's a broadcasting medium. It's not a creative sound medium. Um, at least that's not the core business. You know, as part of the business, you deliver creative sound, but it's not the business you're in. The business you're in is selling media time or airtime. So if your airtime budget is reducing, then obviously everything else in the station is going to get reduced as well because they can't handle the overhead. So when you look at major studios and films, it's kind of the same thing. 
In addition to, you know, we've had massive market consolidation with radio station ownership, not only in Australia, but around the world. It's the same thing with major studios. I mean, Disney's just about to buy Fox. Who would have thought that would happen? But it looks yeah. like it might happen. You know, so when you look at the consolidation of major movie studios, the only thing that drives that is the ability for the marketplace to be able to capitalise it. And the only marketplace that can capitalise those sort of takeovers is the stock market. And what does the stock market want? They want 12, 15, 13% year-over-year growth. You don't get that kind of consistent growth out of the movie business. It's a very, very up-and-down, you know, hot-and-cold business. One of the ways that the studios choose to minimise their risk is by making movies that are derivative or sequels of movies they've already made before. Because when they put the business model for a movie together, they say, okay, you know, Batman 1 made, I don't know, $100 million, say. Well, Batman 2, if even if we make it with, you know, 30, 50% of the production value, we're still going to get 70% of that audience. So we can guarantee ourselves $70 million return based on the $100 million we made last time. So we know roughly... So there's a reasonably consistent business model versus an inconsistent business model, which is a risky movie with a script that uh, and characters and story that the audience has never seen before and is quite unusual. That's a very risky business for a major movie studio. So, yeah. in, so my, might- in my humble opinion, I think the thing that drives the big movies and their sort of consistent theme, if you like, or whatever, however you phrased it, um, it's more... Who owns the studios and what does that mean for their business and how does, you know, what ROI are those equity investors looking for? Mm. So we're basically saying thank goodness that George Lucas didn't try and pitch Star Wars in 2018, right? (laughs) It's true. Yeah. Yeah, I know. But more power to the studio that would, I mean, Star Wars was a hard movie to make. Yeah. It was incredibly yeah. difficult yeah. Um, and, you well, know. Groundbreaking. Control, it was groundbreaking, but it was also really, really hard for him. He, it took him a long time to make that picture. Mm. Um, and, and it was a very difficult picture for him to make. And I think there were some executives at Fox that really took a risk uh, on him as a filmmaker. Um, and obviously it paid off for them and paid off for him too. Um, <laughs> Big time. But even but it's back interesting, then, yeah. that was 1975 when they greenlit that film. Uh, yeah. uh, maybe 74, yep. I can't remember. Yep. But even back then it was a risk. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But that was, I mean, he, he basically sold sold his soul to the devil to get it through in the first place, right? Um, I know he I know he, he did a good deal on the, on the merchandise. Yeah, I, I think that, that was, yes, wasn't that a deal? I thought did. that was the deal. Don't pay me to make the movie, but I want the merchandise rights. I could be wrong uh, on that. Something like that, yeah. yeah. That's, that's what I seem to remember reading. Yeah, um, yeah, but it's the same with music, though. I mean, music uh, in the '60s through the '70s, probably into the '80s and maybe early '90s. Like we had companies who were happy to invest. That you know, the first album may not fire, the second one may not go, third one may not, but the fourth one could. Mm. Uh, and they would invest in the future. They wouldn't just invest in that you know one single on Spotify, which is basically it now. Yeah, that's right. Well, look at John Mellencamp. Yeah. We wouldn't have John Mellencamp if it wasn't for. Um, what was his second record company that picked him up? Can't remember. Uh, yeah, Warner was, Brothers. Was it Warner's? Yeah, whoever it was. I mean, he was well, on CBS his... had him in the end, but yeah, uh, he was written uh, off basically. 
I was going to say, I think it was CBS, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, CBS. And also Springsteen, he was another one that was, uh, you know, if the record companies had ditched him on the first two albums, that would have been it. Mm, absolutely. Now, but, listen, uh, Rainsy, we can't let you go. We can't wrap up this interview without getting a bit geeky here. Uh, talk us through... Uh, <laughs> Talk us through your favourite gear, your favourite favourite plugins, maybe some favourite workflows if you've got any, or just give us some geek gear. You know, I'm I'm actually I had some really cool geeky stuff which I just I literally sold it all about a year ago. Um, you know, I had a, an outboard rack that I would bring to dubs and mm. bring to mixes, but really in the last five years, a lot of it's a lot of the the technology in the box has gotten a lot better. I mean, I've been mixing in the box for a long time, um, not as long as some, but but a long time. And you know, I don't have it. Uh, number one, I kind of don't like audio guys saying, "Hey, this tool is really good. This plugin's really cool," because then everyone goes and uses it and then thinks that they can get the sound that <laughs> yes. that guy yes. may or may not have yeah. you know been well known for. And I don't think. You know the 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 number one thing is always your ears, and second to that, or maybe primary to that, is the monitoring environment. I was down in Perth at the end of last year, and I did a talk for the Australian Screen Sound Guild. Um, and someone asked me roughly the same question, although it was quantified in terms of what's your favourite film mixing console. My response was, and it's the same for plugins, and it's the same for. Um, I mean, I have to work in Pro Tools because the entire industry is on it now. But, um, but in terms of like consoles and plugins and all sort of stuff, you know, I don't have a religion in terms of those things. Mm. Um, to me, the most important thing is which, what room am I going to be in when I'm making decisions with my director? I have my favorite rooms at uh, every studio here, and I will only work in those rooms at those studios. Mm. Um, because I can I love trust, that you're saying that. I can trust the translation of those rooms to a theatrical environment or to a home environment or whatever. So let me um, take I, that, that, that. That's an exact inverse or or the the mirror image of what I tell all the voice actors. You know, when they say, "What's the mic?" and I'm like, "No, no, 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 no the mic. Get the room right." You know, it's the exact. It's the same thing. The room has to be right, and the voice to go to go with the room. Mm. And then yeah, the, everything the performance, else. Just, the performance yeah. is number one, and the and the and the um, the the room or the environment is secondary. But number one is performance. If you can't get the right performance, then good luck trying. I mean, you'll never get the sound right. You'll never get it to sound good enough for the client if the performance doesn't work. Well, yeah. you can't polish exactly. a turd. Is that what you're saying, Rainsy? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hey, listen. Well, you know, it's funny. I, I did this that that two weeks of ADR down in Jakarta, and we worked in some pretty kind of not so great ADR facilities because Jakarta is not a big filmmaking community and yet we got really, really good performances and as a result, the filmmaker loved everything that happened in his track, you know, once we got it back to LA and mixed it Mm. and, you know, there was a little bit of, oh, gee, this isn't a beautiful recording but that didn't matter, the performance was there. It's funny, I heard a quote from a recording engineer um, and the question was asked again, what's, you know, What's your fa- what what do you use? You know, what microphones do you use? What preamps do you use? What desks do you use? And he said, I use whatever's there. Yeah, ain't that the truth? Yeah, I'm the, I'm kind of the same. I've worked on Neve, Harrison, Euphonics, obviously Avid. Um, it I did, makes no difference to me. I did, a, um, I did a re-recording course at AFTERS here. Oh, Jesus. Uh, back when there was first... I talk- remember when you did that. 
Yeah, and and they had a beautiful old Harrison Twelve in the in the room. And man, I mean, I you know, I, I haven't worked on a lot of big consoles like that. Probably one or two, but wow, that was a sweet ride. That's for sure. Yeah, yeah, we got the um, uh, forgotten EQ, the the Great River EQ in it. Yeah, that's right. And, and speaking of which, I remember you used to have a, a Pultec EQ. Do you still have that? No, I sold that when I left Australia. Did you? Think? Oh, you fool! Yeah, <laughs> it was beautiful. I used to I just 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 to fill you in. I used to freelance when Rainsy had his business. I I quit radio not long after Rainsy, and he used to get me in to come and do some work for him at night. And uh, man, I used to love that thing. That was gorgeous. Did you use yeah. the du- for those yeah, who don't I, know? I, wish, yeah. I, I had, like I said, I had up until recently in my dialogue chain here um, some hardware, a hardware rack with you know some Neve. I had like six Neve units and um, just some really cool, expensive, it was like a $50,000 rack. Mm. And one of the things that's made me change is working in Atmos. You can't be locked to a dialogue chain that's limited in the number of channels, which surely a expensive rack will mm. limit you mm. um, when you're mixing in Atmos. Um, I don't know if you, do you guys know what Atmos is? Well, the, that's the Dolby... Uh... Nine twelve channel surround system. Yeah, is it Atmos, 9.1? At, Atmos is a delivery. It's a delivery medium, but also a um, number of channels in inverted commas. But basically, it's it's up to one hundred and twenty eight channels of sound, as opposed to traditional film or traditional in the last fifteen twenty years has been either five point one or seven point one sound. Um, Atmos yeah. is is many many more channels. Um, and a great example of an Atmos mix and what people do with them is the movie Gravity. That film had, a, yeah. you know, had dialogue coming off the screen and going around behind you. Um, if you don't have a dialogue chain that is able to be multiplied many times over, then you can't do that kind of movement with a soundtrack. Try wow. doing that on a patch Which is why I don't have them <laughs> full tech anymore. <laughs> uh, so I've, you mentioned the Harrison 12. I. I picture that. I, I don't know if I've ever seen one, but isn't that one of those quite large format yeah. consoles that are in the remixing? Or the yeah, mixing that's right. So, so the course I was talking about was a remixing course at the, um, and AFTERS is the Australian Film, Television and Radio School. And I took myself off to do that uh, mostly because I wanted to learn about surround sound. And this was, Jesus, late 90s, just when they were talking about, you know, surround sound starting to hit TV and all that sort of stuff. So that's that's why I took myself off to do that course. But, yeah, they had this beautiful big old Harrison 12 on the mixing stage at, that the film, television and radio school was a pleasure to work with, that's for sure. Where do you like to go see a film because you like the way that, speaking of rooms, other than playing a back of film in your favourite room at Warner Brothers, where do you like to go in L.A.? where you really like the sound in the theatre? When I'm in L.A., I, my wife and I either go, if, if when we go out to a film, we either go to a screening at the studios um, because we know they've all, all their rooms, if they're doing a screening, have been, you know, pro, their projection is, is correct. Um, of course. Uh, if not, then our second choice is the Arclight um, because, once again, they generally have projection pretty well sorted out. Yeah. Um, but lately, we just finished building a little home theater slash sound design room in our house. We've got a separate, uh, separate structure out the back of our property, and I, we put a little home theater thing in there. So lately, we've been watching films in there because it's, you know, I did all the acoustic design on that, and it's it's close enough, and it's certainly better than than most kind of home environments. So it's lately been good enough for us. 
<laughs> and this is why movie theaters, ladies and gentlemen, have to have giant reclining electric seats and all sorts of other gimmicks right, and exactly. crap to get you to show up because we're building these home theaters that sound and look sounding and look incredible. Mm. And that's you well, Rainsy sent me a photo of his home you. studio. You should see it. It's very. In fact, I might throw it up in the show notes if that's okay with you, Rainsy. Ah, uh, just give us the address, David. We'll uh, be around there. Yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, actually, I live like three blocks from Warner Brothers. Um, I'm lucky I get to walk Andy. to work. Um, the oh the thing about watching films, though, at home, there's some films that you don't want to watch at home. Like like a comedy is, is far more, you know, like a movie like The Hangover is far more enjoyable watching in a movie oh, yeah. environment, yeah. you know, with an audience because yeah. part of that process of enjoying the picture is, is hearing other people enjoy the picture. Mm, absolutely. Oh, yeah. I, the first comedy I remember seeing in the theater where it really was like, oh, my gosh, listen to the audience, was um, there's there's something about Mary. <laughs> yes. yes right. Right. It was yeah, such yeah. an out there movie. I mean, they really pushed boundaries of taste and everything. And the audience, like, it, they drowned out the dialogue like a third of the movie. They're just I, I, remember laughing that. I remember that watching. You got, have you guys seen a film called Two Hands? Yes. No. Oh, it's a great. It's, um, it's Heath Ledger before Heath Ledger was a big Hollywood guy. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, I know two um, hands. Yes, yes, shot in it, Sydney. Yeah, yeah, shot in Sydney, and it's about yeah, the, yeah. the underworld in King's Cross. Mm-hmm. And yes, it is a right. laugh out loud film. Mm-hmm. It's very black comedy. And watch, I watched that film. It must have been five times in the cinema, partly because it's a great film, and also because watching it with an audience is just great. Yeah, George, jump online and find it and and have a look. It's an awesome movie. Yeah, yeah, Brian. I, I'm looking right Brian now. Brown plays that perfect gangster. Yes, the real <laughs> bogan gangster. It's great. Brian, Brian Brown basically plays Brian Brown. He's um, that's his signature role, I reckon. Yeah. Oh, oh great. George has yeah, found it. That. that was it. Yeah, found it. <laughs> well, you know, even Netflix online auto plays with audio there you go. for the website. Yeah. So. <laughs> There's another and, and great. A guy that, and a guy that you guys know, uh, Rick Carter, is in that picture. Um, and Rick's a, he's a great voiceover guy. Yeah, there's a few people pop up in that. There's another great film, actually, in that sort of genre that was done here in Australia, and that was Getting Squared. Uh, and they flew oh, in Timothy's... Yeah, they, <laughs> that's great. There's a there's a great uh, scene. It's um, Richard Roxburgh plays this sort of heroin addict. <laughs> and there's the best scene of him. It, it He's running down the street in the... You know, he's got the tight footy shorts on and what you would call flip-flops. George, we call them thongs. Yeah. Uh, and there's him being chased in a pair of thongs... <laughs> running down the street and the sound of someone running in thongs is so unique and it's fantastic. You've got to see it. <laughs> well, listen, Rainsy, this has been awesome, mate. Thank you so much for your time. We've probably held you up way more, way longer than you thought we would, but um, it's been awesome to talk to you. Thanks for your time. No worries, guys. It's been fun. Thank you. If ever I had a case of career envy, that's mine. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Yes, I can understand that. Absolutely. He's a guy I need to hang out with at some point for sure. Yes, George. There you he go. You've got, your, uh, you've got your chance. And it's a nice guy to shot away. Not just a shot away. <laughs> yeah, give me shelter. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I'd love to do that job any day of the week. Yeah, but the trouble is if you disappeared for two days. Mm, that's right. Down a rabbit hole. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You, you would never emerge in that's Hollywood. That's right. would be gone. Yeah. Gone for good. Yeah. What's it in what in uh, in the Hangover? What is it? Bangkok's got him? It's in, in that case, it's Hollywood's got him. Yes, <laughs> yes. that's right. <laughs> yeah. Well, there you go. There goes another show. Hopefully, mm. we've uh, been slightly informative. Uh, yeah. Hopefully, we there was something in there somewhere. Surely, for someone. 
<laughs> yeah, I'm, 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 still, uh, I'm still I'm still amazed about Red October. Yes, how they the audio when they had to do it or plant all the microphones. That is insane. Oh, isn't that crazy? Live mixing a movie of that standing. That's crazy. Yeah. Just crazy. One mistake, they'll take you outside and shoot you. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, no pressure. No pressure at all. <laughs> and let's face it, Sean Connery is licensed to kill. So, you know, <laughs> yes. you're in trouble. And, and licensed to wear a wig and have a really bad Russian accent. Uparuski. <laughs> 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 yeah. So there you go. Well, what? what so oh, ends no, on. I'm sorry. Go on. Stephanie, I'm sure you're just trying to end the dang show, and I have to add something more. <laughs> yeah, to the yeah mix. me too. But I was, I go had on. a moment to, uh, to, um, as I was reading recording hacks earlier, up popped an ad, and I clicked on it, and it's for Antelope Audio tying up the, uh, the emulating microphone thing or modeling mic. They have their own, it's called the Edge. And um, it seems to go with that same sphere audio design where it's got stereo output. It has two capsule output, uses a five pin XLR and then uh, goes on out and goes into their own system. And beyond that, I don't know anything about it because I just discovered it. But as you can see, this is, this is becoming a trend um, in mic design. And I'm sure we're going to see a lot more of this in the next year. Yeah, right. Righto. Time to um, put the microphones back in their dust cover and disappear for another week or so. Hopefully they won't collect too much dust, otherwise we'll be out of money. <laughs> yeah, well, that's true. Talking about dust covers, though, I, the uh, the 416, uh, that's because uh, I'm getting a bit lazy. That is the microphone I use pretty well all the time now. Isn't that funny? Because just easy, just easy, I think. Momentum. Besides, we've given, and, it a, uh, we've given it a cool name now too. Yeah, sounds, sounds like much better. like a sports better. car now. Yeah. It does. Yeah. That's all right. Yeah. All right. We are. On that note. Yep. Gone. Goodbye. Wipe the tear, baby, from your eye. Though it's hard to part, I know. I'll be tickled to death to go. Don't cry. Don't sigh. There's a silver lining in the sky. Bonsoir, old thing. Cheerio. Chin, chin. Na, poo, toodaloo. Goodbye.